Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This, from God's prophet, is the very word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, now may the words that I speak, and the thoughts that we all think, be pleasing in your sight, that is, be good for our hearing, good for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the story of Aladdin, the story of a boy whose father dies, whose mother, being uh, in need and confused, allows a merchant who's visiting to swindle her into allowing her son to go and to help him on some unknown, unknown task. Aladdin is taken to a mysterious magical cave where this merchant sends him into the cave to fetch a magical lamp for him. The lamp, of course, contains a genie. Aladdin doesn't go out of the cave, rather stays in the cave, finds out that the lamp is magical, uses the lamp to escape from this man, establishes his own palace, marries a princess. story goes on and on. The stories are set in the land of Arabia or the Persian area or the the area east of Jerusalem, this mysterious land, a land that is enchanting, maybe is the best word, and has been over history in the 1700s, in 1705, a, a French archaeologist, a studier of foreign culture, uh, took back, brought back with him from this region a story or a collection of stories called Thousand and One Nights, and he translated this out of Arabic into the the French language and exposed uh, the people of of France, and very soon other languages followed to this land of intrigue and suspense and and, and just a very foreign culture, sprinkled in with this mixture of stories, a few stories that he got from other places, like the story of Aladdin. The story of Alibaba and the, the, the thieves and a couple of others. These stories, of course, are set essentially in the same region that Daniel is written from. Daniel is taken captive from Jerusalem, Judah, the nation that is the southern part of Israel that still remained faithful to some degree to God. God is protected and sustained, taken east to what is modern-day Iraq, to the city of Babylon, a foreign land. This 
kind of mixture of Persian and Mesopotamian cultures. It's a very foreign land, but it's also a very foreign time. It's a foreign time for us when we come to study the Bible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Most of us, if I asked you to tell me the story of Abraham, if you've been around the church at all, or even if you've just read basic parts of the Bible, you could tell me something of the story of Abraham. God took him out of this same land, Ur of the Chaldeans, this region of Babylon before it became Babylon, took him to the promised land. He had Isaac, and Jacob, and Isaac had Jacob. You know something of the narrative of the story of Moses. And Moses brought the people out of the promised land, leading them by God's hand. God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. They wandered through the wilderness. You know the basics of these, even David. But when I ask you to tell me the story that happened still 400 years after David... When all of a sudden Babylon comes and conquers the land of Judah, capital city of Jerusalem, and takes people captive back to the land, I would suspect that most of us can't tell us much about what actually happens there. It's a, it's a foreign, enchanting kind of time because, because it's less access, accessible in the biblical narrative than these other stories. You can read just a small portion of Genesis and get the feel for Abraham and his offspring. You can read a small portion of Exodus and get a feeling for the story of Moses, roughly 400 years after Abraham. You can read a portion of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and get a feel for the story of David, roughly 400 years after Moses. But you come to the story of the deportation to Babylon, when the time that Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes people back to Babylon, conquers Jerusalem, You can't tell the story as easily, and here's part of the reason. Because you've got to go in and wade up to your neck or over your head through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are contemporaries with Daniel, roughly, but write immense works of prophecy with great, powerful images that are a little bit like Alibaba, or Aladdin, when they were first presented, they were foreign to us. We don't understand what they mean. But this is perhaps on par, if not right there, with all the other stories that I've mentioned in importance in the story of redemption that God reveals in His Word. In fact, I would suggest it is ultimately very important, maybe even more important, for understanding who Christ is and his redemption because of the amount of space that it takes up in the Old Testament. Prophets, the kings that are recorded. Many of us get to the middle of the books of the kings and chronicles and we don't even make it to the story of Jehoiakim. Who is Jehoiakim? Or Jehoiakim, is he somebody different? Yes, he is. So, one of my goals with this series on Daniel is to give us exposure into this foreign world because I think that you'll find that it is even more enchanting, even more intriguing than stories of Aladdin, Alibaba, and the other stories, thousand and one stories of the Arabian Nights. Now...
these foreign stories show us something about God. When we come to the stories, sorry, I lost my place there for a second. Here we are. If you were a person who was familiar with this story and living in the time of Daniel, hearing this story told, or even shortly after, and you knew the story of the Bible, these words, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God would have immediately made you think of something with some of the vessels of the house of God. It would have immediately made you turn back to the story that's in 1 Samuel, a story that comes before David becomes king, not long before, but shortly before David comes, becomes king, the story of another event in which the people of God, the people of Israel went out to fight a battle. They were fighting against their arch enemies, the Philistines, the people who lived in the land that's roughly the Gaza Strip, the area between Israel, the Gaza Strip today, the area between Israel and Egypt at the time. These people were known to be big. Goliath came from this region. They were known to be powerful warriors, people with great skills, fearsome people. People of God were frequently scared of them when they weren't supposed to be scared, and yet at other times they would go into battle with them when God hadn't called them into battle. On one occasion, he calls, doesn't call them into battle, they choose to go anyway, and you find in 1 Samuel 4 that the battle is a disaster. Tens of thousands of Israelites die in the battle, but what's worse is that the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the Israelites kept the Ten Commandments of the Lord, the symbol of God's power, the thing that they would carry with them into battle, before them into battle, the symbol that it was God who was their power and leads them. When all the people flee, the Philistines take the ark. The Philistines take the ark, and where do they take it? They take it back into the temple of one of their own gods, <coughs> a god whose name is Dagon. Now, Dagon, Dagon is one of those biblical names that's tough not to remember. I was just talking with a friend of mine. This is a slight digression, but we're going to come back to it. I was just talking with a friend of mine this week who is a historian who uh, was talking about the first book that he had written, and he had received criticism that it was not very accessible because he listed a lot of names of people, and he happens to be a Middle Eastern historian, so names of people who are very foreign to us. It was tough to track. Oh, who, who is that? Where do we see him uh, later on? Dagon is one, not one of these names, but we find throughout Daniel and throughout the history of the prophets a lot of these types of names. We're a little bit familiar with um, the name Nebuchadnezzar, but you also have the name Belteshazzar, which is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gives to Daniel or somebody in his court gives to Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these are foreign names, difficult to understand. I want to say that the biblical names that we come to throughout the Bible are 
are important because they help ground things in history. In fact, I told this to my friend. I said, look, those names may be difficult to read, but ultimately they are grounding what you wrote in history. They show that you're not just making up stories that are vague and general, but speaking about specific people in specific places at specific times. You can link these things back. And one of the, one of the, the, the biggest reasons, the most common reasons that people today give for not believing that the Bible is true is that they don't see uh, the Bible as being historically accurate. Is the Bible historically accurate? And one of the important ways that God communicates to us that he is recording actual history is by including the actual names, not just people in his small tribe, in his small nation, in that small part of the world, but names of kings and rulers. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son, who becomes king. Cyrus, we'll find all these names in Daniel. And in fact, we find all kinds of names through the Bible that lend historical credibility to the text of the Bible. While I'm on this little tangent, I want to give you two other things that I want you to consider when you're talking with somebody, when you're considering the historical accuracy of the Bible. The first of these is, unlike the stories of Alibaba, Aladdin, Thousand and One Nights, the biblical stories did not start off as oral tradition. These stories started off as oral oral tradition, spoken one to the next person, and like a game of telephone, where you tell one person something in secret, and then they pass it on to the next person, they pass it on to the next person, and it gets changed, and it's almost unrecognizable oftentimes when you get to the last person. Unlike the type of oral tradition, the importance of God using prophets to record his word is that when God gave the prophets his word, either they would speak it to the people and that was the end of it, or they would write it down. And it would be stored in perpetuity for his people throughout the generations to us. The Bible never communicates that things were given in oral tradition and then eventually written down. The Bible always speaks of itself as God giving words to the prophet and the prophet saying or writing these words. This is very important, very important because it speaks to the accuracy of what was recorded. And the Bible should not be confused with oral traditions. The second thing that I want to mention, the other thing, is that the Bible is very distinct from other national histories. The Bible primarily speaks of the national history of Israel in this one important way. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Histories in the ancient world did not record defeats. The way you have records of defeats is when the victor tells of him defeating the other country. Even today, we don't like to record stories of our defeats. Nations write History, rewrite history so that they look like they are in the right and everybody else is in the wrong. Their opponents are in the wrong. 
people write history so that their position will be promoted and use the defeats of others to promote their position. The Bible is not shy about recording the defeats of the people of Israel. Even expressing them in terms that the Lord himself was defeated at times. Now this is significant. We're going to come back to this. But when you consider the historical accuracy of the Bible and even lay it against the accuracy of other historical accounts of the time period or even later periods, compare these things with these other records. And the other records are oftentimes found much more in wanting than the biblical text is. Text of the Bible in terms of accuracy. The names are recorded. It's not oral tradition. And Israel's defeats are put on display for all to see. Now, a lot of the names are difficult to remember, but the name Dagon is easy to remember. You can remember Dagon. Dagon was the name of this other god, the Philistines' god. The ark is brought into the temple of Dagon, and that very night, something happens. Not a year later when there happens to be an earthquake. That very night, something happens. The priests of Dagon come in the very next morning, and Dagon, a statue of Dagon, has fallen face first positioned as if it was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. No earthquake recorded, nothing, just Dagon fallen. The priests say, well, maybe, maybe somebody nudged him. Maybe something weird happened. We'll just prop him back up here. Everything will be fine. The next morning they come back in and this time Dagon is fallen in the same position, but his head and his hands are cut off and lying on the threshold of the door. Cut off. Unmistakable. Something happened here. When the people of Israel would have heard these words, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. They expected the same thing that happened to Dagon to happen in this temple, this treasury. You see, the priests of Dagon weren't stupid. They knew something was up, and so that day they put the ark on a cart, attached it to some beasts of burden and sent it on its way on the path, the road back to Jerusalem to restore it to its rightful place. Any day now, any day now, the vessels from the temple are going to be on a cart coming back to Jerusalem, I thought. But they didn't come. They didn't come and And what's more surprising are these four words that are put right at the beginning of verse 2. And the Lord gave 
This is the point where you would expect that you, maybe God was distracted by a problem on the other side of the universe and he, he forgot to watch after the people of Israel and, and the people of Babylon came and they, they conquered them when God was distracted. He wasn't looking while, while a bully came and roughed up his children. And yet there are four words here. And the Lord gave. Now, you say, Pastor, you're not preaching a comforting sermon here. You're saying that God brought the king of Babylon to put the city in siege and then take some of the people back with him. Let me mention, this whole thing didn't happen overnight. It wasn't one siege. In fact, we heard earlier that Nebuchadnezzar sieged the city and then evidently some diplomatic agreement was come to where they agreed to serve Babylon. And you read on in verse 3 that the king commanded then Ashpenaz, there's one of those names, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is where Daniel comes in, by the way. Next week we'll look at this. Daniel is one of the people who's brought back. The whole thing happens over time. I'm going to tell you more of the story of that time next week. But even now you've got Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon exercising this power, and yet God is the one who is orchestrating it. How is this comforting? How is this comforting when my life seems to be spiraling out of control? How is this comforting when things happen around me that seem awful? When my daughter was diagnosed with cancer. When my son is killed in Iraq serving in the military. When my world is crumbling. My marriage is in trouble. My work is chaotic and filled with conflict. My children are rejecting the faith. You can list on how. How is it comforting to know that God is in control? The story of Dagon is interesting because Dagon's hands were cut off. His head was cut off. When you come to Daniel verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And it says, with some of the vessels. It's, it's a tricky translation of a word that's very interesting choice. In the Hebrew language that this is recorded in, literally it says, And a cut off portion of the vessels were taken to Babylon. Similar, if not the same language, is back with Dagon. Dagon's hands and feet were cut off. Here, a portion of the vessels were cut off and taken to Babylon. In fact, the story on how this unfolds is a gradual taking 
cutting off more and more of the things of God and taking them to Babylon. It's reminiscent of a story that is written by a Japanese theologian writer named Shushako Endo called The Sea and Poison. He records stories. This one particular story is set in the time of World War II and then afterward, and it's telling the story of a particular Japanese physician who was essentially forced to assist with experiments on American prisoners of war where they would cut away portions of the prisoner's lungs until the prisoner died. Cutting, cutting, cutting to find out how much tissue could be cut away until death would happen. And the story goes on to tell of this man's tumultuous life after the war and the guilt that he felt for this cutting away of life and murdering. And you say, this isn't helping me. It seems like God is just cutting, 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 cutting away portions of the people and sending them off to Babylon, cutting away portions of his temple until the whole temple is destroyed in the process and sending it away doing away with it. And the story is particularly troubling until you come to think of God not as an experimenting physician wondering how far he can cut until death occurs, but a master physician knowing exactly how much of dead and decaying tissue can be cut away so that life can come out. Cutting, cutting, cutting away the things that have died, that have said, God, you're useless, you are worthless, you don't, what's worse, you're irrelevant. I don't need you. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, this great and powerful structure is what I will look to for security. Jerusalem, Judea was a small kingdom, but man, that temple was impressive to anyone who came around. It was massive. Still today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see the Temple Mount and the walls that were there as essentially they existed, at least in proportion, in that time. And you can imagine the temple sitting above it, and they were saying, God, it's it's the temple, God. It's the temple that's my security. It's not God himself. God says, I'm going to cut away the things that cause you false security. I'm going to cut away the things that are dead. They are dead faith. Like many of us going through the ritual of going to church, attending certain things, reading the Bible, it's dead unless it is connected to the living God who is the powerful one who even directs and uses tragic things To cut away the dead things in your life and bring new life. And in fact, the story of Daniel. Look, I thought initially I would read Daniel and study Daniel and present it to you in a time when our nation, Western civilization, views Christianity in a hostile 
view. They say, you are the moral bigots. You are the moral inferior people. And I thought, this is a way that we can learn how to be faithful in a time when everyone else is, is crowding in on me. And I'm coming to realize that Daniel is maybe a little bit of that, but it is primarily the story of God breathing new life, not just into his people, but into the foreign nations around him, to the point that even the king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes a follower and believer in the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. And he instructs the people of his land to believe in this God. All kinds of surprising life comes out of the cutting away of the dead to the point where it ultimately can't help but point us to the cutting away of life, the life of God himself. Look, God is not afraid to cut away his own things. Not just the vessels in the temple, not just the temple itself, but the real temple, the temple that is Jesus Christ, is cut away, cut down, Life taken from him, his very body dead in the grave, so that kings of foreign nations could come to worship the God of the universe and to know him as their God. It brings life back to some portions of God's people, but there are still a lot of people who just sit back and are dead. Dead, and they are cut off. They are cut off because they are not just dead. They are bringing death to everything else around. And so the story of Daniel is a story of cutting, cutting, cutting. Not to bring death, but of what's already dead. And to bring life. Now listen, all of us are sitting in places of death if we do not know God. And the Bible tells us uncomfortably at times that either we will be cut off or given life. But the hope of the gospel is this, that even those who are cut off can be given new life. The one story you know from Ezekiel, I know you all know it, is the story of dead and dry bones cut off from any confusion of form of life, lying in a dead and dry valley, the valley in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in this land that was being cut off, those dry bones being given flesh and muscle and sinew, and new life. If you are in a place of dead faith, of dead religiosity, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, then this cutting is a cutting that can even bring you back to life and breathe into you life again. This is the story of Daniel. The story of the exile to Babylon. The story of the people of God being restored to their heavenly city and the temple being rebuilt. 
but still only a shadow of the ultimate temple, which is Jesus, who was torn down and, just as he said, raised up again after three days. Hope, interested in this this far eastern or near eastern story now? Let's study it together in the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Arabian nights that bring day and light. Father, will you breathe new life into us through this story of Daniel? Help us to make this story our own and see our hope in the hope of your restoration your kingdom power. That even kings of the most powerful nations are but pieces on your ultimate game of chess, that you move at your will. Thank you for the comforting words that you are never out to lunch, but that you gave Jehoiakim into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. May we find comfort in the knowledge that your cutting away of dead things is masterful and brings life. Thank you, Lord, that you know when to stop and that you show us that you stopped and you have brought life. Father, we thank you and we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.